Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 76. I am your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we are excited to have with us the inspirational and acclaimed author of the book, If I Die Before I Wake, A Caregiver's Journey, Eli Shaw. Eli, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great. And Bye. it's like, so you go, you go Eli or Bob. So we'll let, we'll let you kind of steer that boat on what you, yeah, like you can call me Bob. Yeah. Okay. Everybody around here knows me as Bob and uh, you know, but the, 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 um, the reason why I'll tell you a quick story. The reason why I got to become uh, Eli Shaw was uh, in the book. There are, um, it was about 12 um, accounts of people who had passed, um, they, they were part of a uh, photo exhibit that I did that went national. And what I did was I took a portrait of the person who was HIV positive, And then they wrote their story and I put it, put the story and the picture in the same frame. And it, it was at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine for about six months. And then it went across country, uh, I guess twice. I, I can't remember now, but it was all over the place. And uh, Finally, I came back, and when I uh, talked to them, they said I could use their story in, in a book if I ever wrote one, because I told them I always wanted to write a book. So uh, I started putting them in the book, and then I had to contact some of their relatives to make sure that was you know they knew what was happening. And most of them were very upset because they didn't want anybody to know that they had a, a son or a daughter who died of AIDS or substance abuse or uh, was gay or whatever. So I was talk, I, I decided I was just gonna use their initials or their first name. And one of the parents said, well, listen, if they know you and they know the story, they're gonna know who it is. And so I said, okay. So I called my publisher and she said, no, now it's time for a pen name. So she says, figure out, figure out a pen name. So I used my middle name and the last part of my last name. So. <laughs> oh, cool. So. But yeah, and we, 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 we're going to talk about your book in a little bit, but first we wanted to – so you have a pretty fascinating story on how you decided to sit down and, and produce this book. And the book came out in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, as I say, you've, you've, you've made a lot of sales. People like it. You have a publisher with it. So, And I think also as we get further into the hour, we'll um, give you what kind of advice you'd be able to give to um, – potential authors to find some publishers, but talk to us about the, uh, the, the impetus of this book. What made you decide to sit down and, and, and write this? Well, um, in 1992, um, I had been taking care of a, uh, uh, actually I was, I was taking care of my father, uh, long distance. He had heart problems and, uh, he ended up going into the hospital for a surgery uh, unfortunately, the surgery went bad. Um, well, the surgery was good, but he ended up spitting up his uh, breathing tube, I guess. And then he went into a coma. So I was kind of like long distance between my sister and I uh, trying to, you know, be the caregiver type thing. And um, I was also taking care of my next door neighbor who had a stroke and she was in her 90s. And I was living in New York at the time. And then my roommate, um, who was, 
which, oh, he was, I think it was in 1980-something, he became HIV positive. So I ended up uh, becoming his caregiver, and um, you know, one thing led to another. And then uh, within a three-month or four-month, uh, about four-month period, all three of them had passed away. And uh, when the first two died, it was like I still had somebody else to take care of, so. That was fine. And then mm. the last one, uh, when um, Mark passed away, um, it was like I hit a, a sort of a brick wall. I My emotions just went all over the place. Uh, I felt numb. I didn't really know what to do with myself because I had been taking care of uh, people for so long. And actually, I had been taking uh, – I started to realize that I had been a caregiver since I was about 10 years old. And um, – I, I was kind of not feeling very, very good about everything. And a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist, I called him up one day and I said, I, you know, uh, you know, I told him what was happening to me. And he said, well, let's go out and get drunk. Come on. So we went out and uh, we had quite a few beers at the time. And uh, I kind of spilled my guts out. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just start writing all your emotions down, uh, everything you can think of that, uh, brought you to this point and, um, you know, get all your feelings on, on paper, just kind of write as much down as possible. So, so I did. And about six months later, I uh, saw him again. I gave him the notebook I had been writing in. And about six weeks later, he called me up and he said, uh, you need to write a book. And <laughs> so, so I talked to him for quite a while about it and he explained to me what he meant. And, um, uh, he said, you've got so much here that has a lot, so much to do with everyday life and um, how we deal with things, uh, how we deal with our children, how we deal with our, our parents who are, um, you know, elderly and whatnot, and what it's, you know, all the struggles of being an, a caregiver. And the, the struggle I had when I was a caregiver in New York was that there really wasn't anything. This is in the 1980s and 90s. And there really wasn't anything out there except for hospital or, or technical doctor's books or nursing books or whatever that could give me any indication of what it's like to be a caregiver of somebody you really love. And so I kind of, you know, felt at a loss for a long time. And then uh, while I was at the library, I figured, you know, those two big lions in New York City in front of the library, I think I, I figured anything that magnificent has got to have the book for me, you know. So I went in and I talked to a couple of people there. And one guy, they all said there was just mostly technical books. There wasn't anything, you know, no uh, memoirs or anything like that that could think of. So um, finally, when uh, one of the uh, librarians came up to me and said, uh, you might think I'm crazy, but I think I've got a book. And if you can uh, bear with me and figure out a way of translating it so that it'll be translated into taking care of a human being, then, you know, this might work for you. So um, I got the book and the book was called Caring for Your Pet. And I didn't, after I read it, I started to realize that uh, there were so many times when you take care of your pet, you have to know what the PB dance is. You have to know what the, I want to go out dance is, I'm hungry dance. Um, and when you're taking care of somebody you really love, you have to know what they want. And a lot of times they can't really tell you or they're um, they're just so weak and, and they really don't have any energy to tell you what they really need. 
And so what I had to do is kind of translate that whole thing into uh, being a caregiver and trying to find out what are the needs of the people like uh, with Mark. Um, you know, there, he had a problem with his throat, so he couldn't really talk that much. So he would start. Uh, I told him, I said, uh, pat your stomach if you're hung hungry. Um, and, you know, and finally I just said, listen, if you got to go to the bathroom that bad, just grab your crotch and I'll, you know, get you down there. Um, but it, it was just all these different things that I had to come up with. And I had to realize, like, you know, I could tell when he was tired. I could tell when he was hungry. Eventually, I could tell when he needed, you know, needed to get up and just kind of like sit, sit down for a while. So I had to find out what those dances were. And when I, after I realized that, I started to realize most of my life um, since I was 10, which is when I met my um, uh, my first friend who had Down syndrome. In those days, they called it uh, mongoloidism. And I was, I told my mother, I met a, uh, I got a Chinese friend now because they just moved into the neighborhood. So uh, she said, invite him over. So I did. And afterwards she asked me to help her dry the dishes, which I knew um, that was a cue for me either getting a lecture or she had to talk to me about something, um, you know, like a uh, uh, captive audience type thing. So she explained to me what it was. And then I looked up mongoloidism and at 10 years old, I found out that Mongolia was right near China. So that was okay. So, you know, I have a Mongolian friend now. <laughs> so, and so that made it okay for me at 10 years old. And then I started to realize that some of the kids in the neighborhood were bullying him or uh, they would make fun of him. And it, it really bothered me that that was happening. So I would kind of jump in and I would be the one that would get beat up or um, or I would just say, you know, Charlie, just run. And then we would both run. Um, and what happened after that was uh, I was going to camp and he um, I asked him if he was going to go to camp. And he said that they don't take people like me. So which I didn't quite understand at that time. But um, when I came back from camp, he had moved away as his father was in the service, I think. And he had been de redeployed somewhere. So I felt like I was a failure. And apparently I told my mother that I wanted to do something to change the way people treated people like Charlie. And uh, I didn't really remember that. But she told me one day that that's, that's what I had told her. And about seven years later, I started, I was working with a group called Senior Teens Against Retardation at that time. Now it's called Senior Teens Aid Re Recreation. And it works, it's teenagers who work with um, uh, people with disabilities, kids with disabilities, and they take them out bowling on weekends and whatever. And uh, so I was working with that group and one of the kids there said something about his brother going to camp. And I said, are you gonna go? And he said, no, they don't take people like me, which is almost exactly the same phrase that I heard from Charlie. So I decided uh, in my infinite wisdom that I was gonna create a camp and um, so I spent uh, the next two years in my brain. Um, and, I, and I think I had a bit of autism and ADD at the time because I spent so many hours by myself in my brain creating this thing and people were just non-existent around me even though they, there might have been people there. I, my brain was just you know, uh, intact doing what I had to do. 
1969, we had our first camp. We had uh, 30 teenagers and 60 kids with uh, disabilities. Uh, it was called Camp Happiness, which is spelled wrong because I can't spell. And, uh, or half the time I can't spell. Um, and so that started and now it's 50 years later and it's, it's happening. So um, all of those things in 1992, I started to realize that all of those things that I did had something to do with caring for a pet, caring for my family, caring for myself, caring for friends, caring for people that I, that I was working with, uh, caring for my job. Everything I did had some sort of care to it. And whether it be um, medical care or whatever, it was still my my job to be the caregiver of whatever whatever domain I was in at that point. And uh, over the years, I started to realize that there was really nothing out there um, to speak of that could help anybody. And um, I, I had talked to so many people, and I found out. Uh, in the late 90s, I was working with a program uh, for HIV and AIDS at the time. And I found out that there were so many people who were caregivers, and it could be the son of somebody who had AIDS, or the daughter uh, who, uh, of somebody who had AIDS, uh, or it could be a relative or even a friend. Um, and they were, they, were, they were all caregivers, but they didn't know how to do it. And they had to just jump in with no uh, orientation, no feedback from anybody. They had to just jump in and do it on their own. And as I became more professional in my caregiving uh, and became a PCA and I worked in the school, uh, I, was, I was working with kids who just couldn't function in, in the classroom. Uh, and I would take them out of the classroom and you know let them scream if they wanted to or whatever. And then we got to work and got, got their work done. Um, and I had some techniques that I used eventually that I, I was told that were really unusual, but somehow they worked. And which was when I first met the student, I wouldn't talk to the student for about a week. I would just give them the information and then, you know, let them do what they had to do. And I would sit in the corner and read a magazine until they were done. And then their, when their papers were done, I would check them out and I say, okay, you're on your own. And finally, after about a week or so, they, one of them, <laughs> I had to laugh because one of them wouldn't speak for quite a while. And all of a sudden, he asked me a question, and I said, holy crap, you can speak. You've got a voice. <laughs> you know, and I was like, you know, and I did my uh, um, my Three Stooges, you know, woo, 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 whatever, and uh, hey, no, hey, Mo, check it out, you know. And they were just like cracking up. And all of a sudden, I got the attention of this kid who just hated school, and now he loved it. And and it was just one of those things that, you know, um, we have a commu communication now. Um, and it, for for uh, it took about a couple of weeks to get him to talk more and more about what was you know what was really you know egging him on to keep you know keep acting up in class. And we talked a lot about that. And eventually, within a month or two, he was able to go back to class. But it was like all these different things. I had to create all these things in my head. Um, I was left on my own with all these things to do, which I had been doing most of my life. Uh, the camp, um, running, a, running a camp or helping to run a camp for HIV and AIDS. Um, you know, it was just whenever I saw there was an injustice or something wasn't right, 
um, I tried to do something about it and it usually I did it kind of in a spectacular way or whatever, because I thought that would make the difference, you know? And, so, so talk to us a bit about Bob, the, when you, when you sat down and wrote that, you said you had a lot of notes and came together and your friend said, mm -hmm. you know, put this into a book. At what point did it go from you writing this as a kind of like a passion project or as kind of like a, a form of, you know, kind of like, you know, self-therapy in a way to write this down as a journal to what was, was there like a pretty, it was a specific decision to say, well, let me, did you have to tweak it at all to make it more applicable for people to read it as a sense of like, like an advice book or a storybook or like a, a like a, a, an autobiography? How would you describe that? Well, when, when I first started the idea of writing an actual book, um, I didn't know how to write a book. I was like, you know, um, I was a novice. I couldn't even spell that good. Um, and it, it was kind of one of these things where I just brought, I, I would travel on the train from uh, Stanford, Connecticut to New York City. And as I'm on the train, I've got, I always brought a notebook with me and I would just, just sit there and just start writing. I'd, I'd start to think, I would think of something. Uh, for example, um, uh, somebody mentioned to me once about, um, they, they asked me how I could uh, handle being the caregiver of three people and whatnot. So I decided, okay, that's a good subject. Let me write about that. So I did. And that became one chapter. And then um, eventually everything I did became a new chapter. I, I met, um, when I was working with the HIV and AIDS programs, I started to write about uh, a program that I started called uh, Legacy, which is my next book, actually. Um, and Legacy was a, uh, uh, it started out because people who were HIV positive were dying and they didn't want to die and become just a statistic or a number, just like we're going through now with, with COVID. People are just becoming statistics or numbers. We only count how many have died, but very seldom we talk about who they were or what their story was. And there's some amazing people out there who have passed away. So I talked to uh, quite a few of them about it. And for about a year, I kind of like milled around in my mind about what, what we could do about it. So I created a program and I realized that you have to know what your legacy is before you can start creating a legacy. So uh, the first question in, in the program is, uh, if I were to die today, what would you, how would you, you be remembered or what would your legacy be? And then you would go around and ask people, your relatives or whatever, and uh, come up with a list. And then the second question is, if I were to die today, um, how would you like to remember, be remembered? And that way you can kind of tweak things around to say, well, you know, I've always been a nice person. I'd like to be known as, as the, the guy next door who was really nice about everything or whatever, kind or whatever. And the third question is, knowing the answer to those questions, what is it you need to create that? What are some of the tools you need? Well, the book was my tool. So when I started talking about legacy, I started to realize that the book is actually my tool. And I saw, so I wrote a whole chapter and I'm actually writing a whole book on legacy and program legacy. Um, and during that time, um, one of the, one of my client's sons, um, who was my camper, my first camper at one of the camps for HIV, um, or for, uh, families with HIV, 
and um, he decided that you know I was he, I was going to be his best friend. So we became friends, and when I, he was only nine, and uh, when his mother kept on going into rehab and whatnot, uh, he ended up coming over to my house, and one day. He kind of said, you know, I want I want you to be my dad or or didn't say it that way, but I want you to take care of me. And his mother on her deathbed said the same thing. Make sure that Homer's OK. You're the one that, you know, is the closest to him. Make sure he's he does well. Well, eventually he tells everybody now he's 36 years old now. Um, I've got a grandson and a granddaughter from him. And um, he he tells everybody that he adopted me. So. But those are the stories, uh, and and it's all part of caregiving. I'm caring for him. I'm caring for his mother. Uh, he's actually caring for me now. So there's a whole turnaround story in that, which is really amazing to me. Anyway, um, and so the, the the when it became interesting to do the book, it was about 1999, I believe, 1997, 99. And I started to really look at it like a book, and I tried to come up with chapters and all this stuff. Well, for the last 25 years, I had been trying to get it published, and nobody wants to talk about HIV anymore. Nobody, nobody was interested in caregiving. It's not a saleable product. Um, it was, um, it was a subject that people were kind of avoiding, um, and because it, it has a lot to do with death and dying. And, and also caring for people who are not responsive and stuff like that. So, you know, most of the people, most of the publishers that I went to said that, uh, well, it's not really a, a good subject to publish right now. You know, nobody really wants to read about that, which is actually almost true because of going through from 2000 on, it was like no, everybody was worried about other things going on and caregiving wasn't really the issue. Right now, it's like the biggest issue going, one of them anyway. And so, um, so anyway, um, I, I decided that the only way I'm going to do this is if I self-publish. So I went to, I found a publishing company that would self-publish it with me. And it cost me, after $36,000 uh, and a lot of headaches, uh, I got it published. <laughs> so, and now I got to sell the damn thing. <laughs> so... Do you do you feel that being that you know this past year has been really tremendous on caregivers, uh, and do you see uh, an increased interest in your book? And is this why subsequent uh, sub, uh, subsequently you're looking at making kind of a follow up book for this? Yeah, um, a year ago or two years ago now, um, I would you know talk to people about uh, the caregiving book and. Um, if I die before I wake one night and explain to him what it was. And I got some, you know, good response. And it was mostly teachers or nurses, um, people who were, um, you know, thinking about going into nursing or, uh, or they were in school for nursing. Um, and I started trying to promote it through all the nursing schools um, and, and trying to get that going. Uh, which took forever to get going. And then once I got it start, or once I was ready to get it going, COVID came in and everything got shut down. So there was, it was like, nobody's going to be looking for my little card that says, if I die before I wake, you really need to read this book. <laughs> you know? So um, what I'm finding now is everybody I talk to, I've got my card with me. And every time I talk to somebody and I tell them about the book, they're all, 
it, it seems like everybody that I talk to has somebody they know that uh, either could read it, or could use it, or they could use it themselves because they're taking care of their father. Their father's been in the nursing home for how many, for over a year and hasn't been able to see anybody. Um, you know, uh, parents are taking care of their kids in their home. Uh, people, I just, uh, I just lost one of my clients on uh, uh, Black Friday and I really believe he died because of loneliness because nobody was coming in to, to visit him. I couldn't go down there because of COVID. Um, I would call him on the phone three times a day. Um, and that's the other thing. Caregiving has a lot to do with uh, what you do, not only being with the person, but for example, uh, when, when Nathan, who just passed away, um, when he moved to South Carolina, I called him every single uh, night and I would have a whole conversation with him and tell him jokes and whatever. Now, this is a kid with cerebral palsy, couldn't move his arms and legs uh, willingly. Um, and if he did, they went all over the place. His head was all over the place. Um, he had very few words. And yet he was one of the happiest kids I've ever met in my life. I've never, I, very seldom I saw him with a, with a frown or he, he was mad at me a couple of times. And I, I walked into the closet, closed my, closed the door and I knocked on the door and I said, Nathan, can I come out again? And I could hear him outside cracking up. So I got him, I got him into a good mood that way. But what what I was doing when he was down there or when he was, you know, when we were going through COVID was I made sure I made contact with him even on the phone or we did videos sometimes. Um, and every so often I'd sneak down there and sneak up on him, you know, and, uh, you know, wear my mask and whatnot and just, you know, sneak in and, uh, you know, scare the bejesus out of him and that, you know, I love that. So, it, but what I saw was that there were so many people out there um, who were losing people, who were uh, who knew people who were ill, and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to help them. They didn't know how, what to give them. Um, and that and that goes for neighbors. I mean, I had I was locked up in this uh, in this house um, pretty much by myself for the whole the whole quarantine thing there, the whole lockdown, and. Um, it was amazing because I got to meet all my neighbors. I, I, there was so many people I didn't know existed around here and we were sharing recipes. We were sending over food for each other. Um, you know, one of my neighbors uh, at one point was living in my house while I was, while I was away because they were homeless. And when I came back, uh, they were going to go back and live in the car. And I said, no, you're going to stay here. And then I got them a fund a place right across the street. So she and I, her, you know, she's got four kids and whatnot. So we all got to, you know, got together and just, you know, uh, we shot off different things or whatever, you know, like for 4th of July, I watched them do their sparklers or whatever. And, you know, we, we became a community for the first time that, that I didn't even know I had, you know, and neighbors that I, that I knew before, but I didn't even know they lived near me. So it was like, um, it was a whole different uh, experience in that way. And I think COVID, during COVID really made people more aware. So whenever I show them the car, they, the first thing they see is uh, a caregiver's, or the, if I die before I wake, but when they see a caregiver's journey, it clicks right away. Oh my God, I could, I should, I should read this because, you know, I'm taking care of my father now. He just had COVID or, or uh, he's been in the nursing home for so long and we couldn't get him out or whatever. And there's so many people. And also um, teachers with their kids, 
they've been going bonkers trying to take care of their kids online. You know, I, I, I couldn't, I worked in the school for about 20 years and I can't even imagine doing that. Um, I mean, it, it just, it, it, uh, I would give it up right away. <laughs> it was, I, I saw what they were doing and how they were doing it. And it was like, how do you get their attention? You know, you have 20 kids on your screen or 10 kids on your screen and they're all doing something different, you know, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. So it's like, Oh crap, you know. So wait, one of our viewers for the Daily Dan blog, he just said that this has to be the nicest person on earth. So people are impressed wow. with all of your <laughs> so what would you say? Get me on a bad day. Get me on a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say, Bob? What are what what what's some of the advice that you would you would give to uh caregivers who might not, as you said, you you you've been a trained caregiver for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. What are some what's some pieces of advice because we're not out of it yet? There's, you know, there's, we're, you know, we're, there, there's a sense of, of helplessness, but not hopelessness right now. We cool. see that there's something we're near the end of it, but what would be some of What would be some advice that you would give for um, caregivers that they might find in your book? I think the main, the first thing is if you're a caregiver and you're, uh, you're taking care of anybody, whether it's your relatives or uh, next door neighbor or a friend or whatever, or if you're a professional and you're going through a lot of stress, most of the caregivers this this past year went through so much hell, um, and 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 the being exhausted, you kind of lose a lot of the techniques, or you don't use some of the techniques you would normally use as a caregiver. One of the main things I found um, is that you know you can I can go I could go into Nathan's room and. Um, I had the worst day in the world and I would say, hey, Nathan, how you doing? Oh, man, what a lousy day I had today, you know, and I would start spieling off. Well, you know, he would kind of look at me and say, you want to talk about a lousy day? I've been laying here for the whole day looking at this freaking ceiling, you know, and, you know, I, I started to when when things like that started to come up, I started to realize I need to find out what his needs are. I have to go in with my baggage outside the door. And then if he asks me about my baggage, I'll tell him. But when I walk in, that's his room. That's his his life. I'm caring for them. I'm not, they're not caring for me, although they are at, at times. They do care for you. Um, you know, they, they try not to be as ill or act as ill sometimes because they know that stresses you out or whatever. Um, but one of the main things is find out what the needs are of the person that you're caring for. Come up with some sort of a communication with that person um, and and be very aware of those things um, when you're taking care of somebody. I remember being in the, ho in the hospital with a friend of mine and he had diverticulitis and um, every so often he would just, you know, the, either the bag would let go or he would let go, whichever. Um, and one of the nurses came in and the first thing she looked, she said, oh, my God, not again. And my first my first thought was I want to punch her, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, if somebody said that to me, I would feel like crap. I'm sorry. You know, uh, excuse my language, but um, I just, you know, it. it when you walk in and somebody's in the hospital or somebody's in a bed in a, in their room or in the house or whatever, or if you're in a, a group home or whatever, um, you 
you try to use as much compassion and kindness as you can um, because, you know, they don't know what you've gone through all day, but you don't know what they've gone through all day either. And it's probably a hell of a lot worse or it's probably something you would never want to go through. So, be, you know, be the person when you walk in and you talk to somebody, like when I would walk into Nathan's room, I go, Nathan, oh, man, it's so great to see you again. How you doing? And it, he would just cheer up. He could have been mad at his mother or something. And he would all of a sudden cheer up and he was just, you know, his eyes were up. And I always found out some of the things he liked, even though he couldn't talk very well. I, I found out he loved church music because I used to take him to church once in a while. And he would sit in his wheelchair in the middle of the aisle, right? And he was the only one out of tune, but he was the loudest one too. And he just, I mean, he when they would have soloists up there, he would sing with the soloist. I mean, and they the whole congregation loved it. And I didn't realize how much he really connected with church music or organ music. And then one day we were watching TV and it happened to be a church service on there or whatever. And so we were watching it for a little while. And all of a sudden he starts singing with the, with the, with the hymns and just wailing away, away and just going. He, he was just so inspired by this. Uh, and the other song that he loved was uh, You Raise Me Up. And uh, that was his favorite song. So I, I found all these different songs that, you know, or the, the different music that he liked. And we would sit there, turn off the TV, and I'd get my, my cell phone or, or computer, and I'd put on some music for him. And it just, it just changed this whole world. He was just in heaven right now. And I think that's what we, we need to do as a caregiver. We need to change things so that it's livable, not, uh, oh, God, I got to change you again or something. Uh, you know, it, it, you, you're trying to make it, make their, their condition at least livable or sustainable at that time. And a lot of us don't do that. I've, I've been involved with so many professional caregivers programs, and it's, it's a job. That's it. It's a job. I go in. I take care of. I, I take care of somebody now. I take him out every day, and um, he only has use of one leg. He has a brace on the other leg. He only has use of one, uh, one arm and his left arm and left leg. We couldn't find figure out a way to give him, get him to exercise. We were trying to get him so that at least he could exercise something. I finally found this one machine that he puts his feet on it. He sits in his wheelchair, puts his feet on it, and there's a there's a uh, handle on it and his feet go back and forth and his arms go back and forth. And the other day he did 3,970 70 steps on that thing. You know, I mean, um, it, it's, and he does it every day. He, I take him up there and they said, and he can't, he can't walk. He has a hard time walking. Um, he just, you know, the, the, the whole thing is, finding things that, I mean, there's something out there for everybody that has to be. And if it means, I mean, it took me four years or three years really to get him to find out what he really could use to make his life a little better. And now he's stronger. He, he can walk better. Um, and for a while during the uh, COVID crisis, I couldn't go up and see him. So we weren't going to the gym because that was closed too. And all of a sudden, I realized that he had lo lost so much 
muscle tone and tenacity in his legs and he had a hard time walking and he got worse and he was punched over. And I started to realize that, you know, wow, that whole th that just that little thing that exercise during the day uh, just made made the world. And he has girlfriends everywhere. So we have to go and visit them. <laughs> so we go into he has got a girlfriend. So. Yeah. so so talk to us a bit about you. As you mentioned, you're working on another book. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that one? Yeah, that's well, actually, I've got two books. One is the camp oh. that are in. Uh, uh, that's going to be my third book, um, and then I'm right. And, and after that, I've got one in, on the line that I want to. I want to write a book about Nathan. He was the one that just passed away. I was his caregiver for 27 years, so we were really close. And I knew he knew me like a book. I knew him like a book. And I'm writing a children's book, uh, and it's called Nate the Great, because everybody used to call him Nate the Great. He was always smiling. He was always cheering people up. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm writing the book, uh, the children's book, um, through Nathan's eyes. In other words, the world through Nathan's eyes and how he saw it. But the next book I'm writing, uh, it's at the um, the editors right now. It's the one about legacy, and it's it's um, it's basically how I came about getting the. Uh, getting the program started and what legacy is about and the fact that I mean we're leaving a legacy right now I'm leaving a legacy on on uh, you know on your videos here and you're leaving a legacy with me um, you know I met you at the um, uh, bookstock and you know we're our legacy is continuing <laughs> you know so it, everything we do we leave a legacy it's just, it's uh, the same thing as caregiving we care for everything but um, when I if if I run down the street and start screaming, that's a legacy. You know, everybody's going to remember that. Um, if I walk down the street and I shake hands with everybody and just greet them and just say, you know, you know, have a great day, um, that's a legacy. There was a guy who became a super senior in Randolph. He used to walk around the hospital and just say, you know, God loves you, and I love you too. You know, he was like in his 80s or 90s, and he was walking. They called him Sarge, and he walked around. His legacy still stands there. I mean, he's gone. He's he passed away, but everybody remembers Sarge. And they all every so often you'll see somebody come up to you and say, you know, God loves you, and and we do too, you know, and and it just kind of you know it brings you back to you know people actually create legacies that can carry on. And um, right now I'm leaving a legacy for my my grandson who's only two. Uh, I'm 72, and and um, I'll be 73 in August, and I don't think I'm going to be around. Or I I may be around, but I may not know I'm around. But uh, I, if he graduates from high school, I may not know it, and I may not be around or healthy enough to uh, to really interact with him and leave a legacy with him. So what I'm doing now is every morning I get up and I talk to him on 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 uh, video here he doesn't you know i uh, i'm talking to him um as if he were 20 years old because i i just i started doing it and said um hey sammy how you doing and i figured if he saw it when he was 20 he was probably think i'm an idiot so i you know <laughs> i decided to talk to him normal and what i'm doing is and i'm talking to him about who i am uh, about my book, about what I've done in my life. I talked to him about COVID, what that did for me, um, uh, because he lived through that at, at two years old, you know. Um, so I talk 
talk to him about that and my relationship with his father, um, how that came about. Um, uh, I just, I, I, I give him advice sometimes uh, or I'll think of something and go, wow, I should talk to Sammy about that. And I'm doing the same thing with my granddaughter too. She's 16, but I'm not going to give it to her until later on. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm accumulating them all and putting them on like a, a zip drive, whatever you call them, external drive. And that way he'll have that for as long as you want. And the reason I do that now is because I always, I remember my father so well, but I would love to have some sort of a video of him talking to me or a video of us talking uh, or maybe, uh, or something that, I mean, I've, I've got pictures and I got a few films that I've, you know, seen him, but I, his voice I still have in my head, but that's fading sometimes. And you know, and and I always wanted to. You know, my mother and I used to talk every single day till the till the day she died, and you know that was the legacy she gave me because we always had that connection. But I would love to have a, a recording of that or, or or a video of that of seeing them talking to me and stuff like that. So <laughs> the funniest thing was that I'm doing this for my grandson, and now my son looked looked at me. We were on on uh, Zoom one day, and he looked at me and he said. Okay, you're doing this for my son, but what about me? <laughs> so now I gotta, I'm doing videos for him, <laughs> so, and my sister, and you know other people and whatnot. So it's it's basically uh, the legacy book is basically how who we are as as human beings and how we relate to each other on a daily basis, and it all has to do with the legacies we leave. It's like uh, Hansel and Gretel leaving the cookies, you know, crackers and whatnot. And sometimes the birds come and pick up those legacies that we've left and they don't exist anymore. Um, and sometimes legacies come up uh, and bite us in the butt that we don't like. And those are gonna be the ones that stick with us. And unfortunately, that's the way life is. Um, and, you know, and, and that's why it's so important to be doing the right things during your life, I guess. Um, you know, and I, I have a neighbor who doesn't like me very well. Um, you know, she had uh, she she's had a rough life and whatnot, and uh, she needs somebody to yell at. So, you know, and the legacy I'm trying to leave her is that you can yell at me all you want, but I'm still going to be nice to you. You know, <laughs> so it, and and the book, what it does is in the end, it, it gives you an opportunity to find things that you can do like writing letters to your relatives and then leaving them when you die um or even before you die um coming up with ideas right i write poetry all the time and i write uh when someone passes away i write a legacy pro a legacy poem for that person every time and in the book i've got about 10 of those in there and it's, it'll give you a good example of what i'm talking about uh there was some, one of my students committed suicide and I knew he had problems or, or I had issues, but everybody thought he was such a nice guy and they didn't really know him that well, I guess. And, or they knew him pretty well, but he didn't show that side of him. And um, as a, when he was a student, I could see that side of him sometimes. And so when he passed away, I wrote a, a poem about him. And in the middle of it, I basically said, judge, I said, judge not what he's done. 
look at his life and 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 when you read the poem you'll understand what i'm talking about the other thing is i wrote a poem about um i've met so many people who have alzheimer's and i followed several people through that experience of having alzheimer's and it's long term you don't notice it you don't notice the different changes and stuff like that so i wrote a poem and it's called um alzheimer's 101 uh, in 12 hours. And so it starts out, well, I lost my key. I can't find it. And your wife or, or somebody uh, finds the key for you. And they go, okay. And then you get up and um, you go for a drive and you can't, you know, you don't recognize a few faces or whatever. And then you go to uh, uh, an event or whatever, and somebody comes up and you don't quite recognize that person, but they, they've known you forever. And it goes on and on. You eventually get home and you sit in a chair and you don't remember that room uh, very well. And then your wife says, go up. Uh, why don't you go upstairs and get ready for bed? Well, you go upstairs, but you go into somebody else's room because you don't want know which room you're supposed to be in. And then you go up. And she goes up and she says, oh, come on, go into the uh, bedroom. And eventually gets to the point where he feels uncomfortable undressing in front of somebody he doesn't know. And, and now he's going to go to bed with that person. And then you put your head on the pillow and then you disappear. And that's, it's like, it goes through a whole series of those things. That's kind of a brief thing of it, but I sent it to the Alzheimer's association and they've used it quite a bit now uh, because it really explained, it, it kind of gives you a, um a really quick um brief summary of of what alzheimer's really does you know and how it, how it can be devastating to you so that's powerful stuff do you so where where do you see yourself as um do you see because you almost wear two hats bob you wear well three like the the autobiographical part where you just want to tell your story there's a part where you kind of act as a teacher to caregivers mm -hmm. but there's also a point where you feel like you have to tell the stories of the people that you worked with in the past which one kind of stands out mostly most for you well i wouldn't have the book if it weren't for the people i was working with so um they have taught me more uh just for an example my son um he's african-american and uh, when I met him at nine, I didn't know the black experience. I didn't know, uh, of course, now we have like, you know, Black Lives Matter and all these things are coming up and what, you know, people don't know what it's like to be black in America and blah, blah, blah. I didn't, I didn't understand that either for a long time. And then uh, I started to learn little by little when uh, uh, he had been, he was in Yonkers where I was staying for a while or I was living for a while. And he was uh, stopped and frisked about about 15 or 16 times. And that last time that he got stopped and frisked, he told me, and I said, how many, how many, how many times has this happened before? And he says, Oh, about 16. And I said, and you didn't tell me. He says, nah, I didn't want you to get worried. So I said, okay. So I went to the police station and I said, I, I just want to know why this person was stopped and frisked. And the only thing they could tell me is that, he looked suspicious. He was standing with a group of people that looked suspicious and they all happened to be black. Um, and 
uh, it was in a in a in more of a black community at the where Yonkers is. There's there's several different communities within that community. Um, so and that was in a uh, black area, or whatever. And so I, I said, well, the next time you stop and frisk him, could you? I'll give you my card. You give me a call and let me know, and I'll be right down. Okay. And he said, well, who the heck are you? And I said, I'm his father. And he goes, you're his father? <laughs> well, that, you know, that didn't go, go very well. Or it, it, he just didn't understand that, you know. And I said, I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm just going to tell you, just give me a call, right? He never got stopped and frisked after that. He was, you know, uh, I guess word got out about Homer. And they said, you know, don't, don't bother with him or whatever. Um, and... Then one day he was going to come up to Vermont. He lives in White Plains, in uh, yeah White Plains, and um, he. Uh, I asked me. I said, "Are you going to be coming up this weekend?" And he said, "Well, I could do it tonight, but I don't want to drive in the dark in Vermont." I said, "Why not?" He says, "Well, I might get stopped." I said, "It's Vermont. You're not going to get stopped in Vermont." Well, little did I know that people do get stopped in Vermont if and if you're black and you're driving a decent-looking car. And he used to drive cars for dealers, so of course he's going to have a new car. And um, I didn't understand that until when he came up and I found out afterwards what you know what he was talking about, and it really hit home. And now I have this fear for my grandson and my granddaughter and my son. You know that I you know. Uh, could he, he be the next uh, George Floyd? You know, who knows? Um, and, you know, and somebody has, somebody tried to tell me that I was overreacting and whatnot. And I said, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I am, but I have a right to, you know, it's because I, of what's happening now. And I've learned, I've learned so much from all the people that I've cared, cared for. Um, and they have taught me so much. And I think that that's, as far as that part of it, knowing them is one of the most important things. And the part about caregiving, I don't know it all. I don't know everything about caregiving. There's a lot of things that I still need to learn too. Um, you know, the, I mean, I've, I've worked with certain types of people or certain situations and, and whatnot, um, and also in the schools. And there's also a lot of different ways to deal with, with students that are not you know, that I need to, I, if I went back into the school system, I would probably have to learn more about. Uh, so there's, you know, I don't know at all. Um, what I can say is that we, in the book, I can only tell you and explain to you and, and tell you about my experiences, about what I have learned. And um, I've learned a lot. You know, I mean, it just, um, just the whole idea of compassion. Um and 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 being, um, w th there was a program called um, <laughs> I can't remember it now. Um, the, the the one of the things was called Be Here Now. One of the programs that they had, uh, EST EST, in the nineties, and I joined it. You know. And one of the programs was Be Here Now, and I didn't understand Be Here Now until. Um, probably around 20 years later, um, uh, about six or seven years ago. And I realized that I can't do anything about the future. I can do something to maybe affect the future, but I can't do anything about it. What's going to happen in the future is going to happen. And I can't do anything about the past. 
and you know the past is basically my my um, instruction book or my uh, social studies book or whatever um, my education book about where I am right now and so being here now the only thing I can do is change the word that I'm gonna say right now right right now that's the only thing I can change what I said just a few minutes few seconds ago I can't change that now that's gone you know uh, unless you edit it <laughs> but uh, what I can't do now also is I can't change the future but I can I can affect it or alter it in some way for example Right now, I've got a lot of, I told you, I have a lot of furniture in my living room. I could affect the future of my living room by just going out there and deciding right now, which is being here now, to go and change and get rid of all that furniture and make it a seatable thing, place. And that will change the future of that living room and my future. But I have to do it as being here now. Right. I can't do it. You know, I can't say, okay, future, this is what you're going to look like, you know. And that changed that changed so much about uh, who I have been and who I am now uh, and what I do. Like uh, uh, my grandfather told me a long time ago, if you find an opportunity and you, you look at it and it sounds something you'd like to do, study it, look at it, discuss it with yourself or others, chew it up, spit it out, and then do it. Because if you do it, you're going to know if you're going to fail or not. If you don't do it, you're never going to know what's going to happen out of it, and you're going to you you may regret it. So by looking at all the opportunity, you, you're an opportunity that that came about, and I said, oh, absolutely, let's do it. You know, um, I didn't even have to chew it up and spit it out. You know. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, thank you very much. So we're at we're at the we're at the top of the hour already. Oh. Wow, this was quick, huh? So. Tell people where they can find your book. So is Amazon the best spot or is there another spot? Yeah, I, I had a little trouble earlier with Amazon. They said there was only one more book left. And uh, so I called my publishing company and they've corrected that now. So you can get it on Amazon. Look up uh, If I Die Before I Wake, A Caregiver's Journey. And it's under Eli Shaw, which is my pen name. And uh, if uh, I can give you my, my uh, email too, if you want. Um, and it's uh, B-K-E-R-S-H-A-W-5607 at gmail.com. And send me an email and, uh, you know, uh, we can maybe work out something. You send me a check, I'll send you the book. <laughs> you know? Perfect. And, 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 we, well, and we can't expect that. <laughs> and as I say, you, you have, you have a, your legacy book is going to be, it's, it's with the editor now. You have a children's book in the process as well, Nate the Great. Mm -hmm. So, so make sure you come back on, come back on the show to talk about your book once I get when your second book comes out. Definitely, yeah. Well, thank you very much. This has been a a, a true a true pleasure, Bob. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you helping me out. Uh, yeah. You know, it just it, there's so much good out there, and I I tend to see it all the time, and a lot of people don't, and I it kind of pisses me off sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's there it's there you know what as you say if you if you look yeah. at it if, if if you look for the good in the world you're gonna find it so, that's that's yeah. true that's true yeah all right thank you very much oh thank you and uh, appreciate it.
I gotta, th I gotta say though, that is a beautiful lamp behind you. Oh, <laughs> I have uh, almost every chandelier in here is um, is uh, Tiffany, and um, I've got all the lamps, you know, all around. They're all Tiffany. Um, I've just, you know, started collecting Tiffany. They were free on Marketplace. I mean, uh, they were cheap on Marketplace, so I started buying them. And my house is a Victorian. It's an old uh, 1900 Victorian. It's tw uh, 10 rooms. And um, so I, uh, no, 16 rooms rather. And 10, be 10 bedrooms altogether. So I've been renovating it because I want to turn it into a respite house for a traumatic brain injury. And, but I've been kind of like um, inundated with furniture. If uh, I, I'm not going to turn the uh, the camera around because I'm so embarrassed about it, but I've got piles of furniture in my li living room uh, that I'm trying to sort through uh, because people kept on, when they found out I was going to do the uh, respite house and I wanted to keep it in like uh, Victorian style, um, people just started dropping off things on my porch. I had uh, the other, uh, about four or five weeks ago, somebody brought in two leather recliners. They were gorgeous I and mean, beautiful. I mean, I, and I, I can't use them because there's no, I have no space for it right now. And so I finally, um, I called them up and I said, do you mind if I uh, bring them down to a friend of mine who can sell them? And that way I can get the money for the house instead of the furniture. So I've been, I've been sort of weeding through all my uh, antiques now and that have been accumulating. I have three storage units in Randolph, uh, one storage unit in uh, um, uh, what do you call it? in Braintree, where I used to live, and I have a uh, three-story barn that's partially full, uh, plus my attic and my second floor that had I'm, that's mostly all done anyway. But uh, I've still got extra stuff in there, and it's it's just like every time I turn around, somebody has something for me, and of course I can't say no, you know. <laughs> it's like <laughs> 